Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 231. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Malkino, our Father, our King. Lord, we stand before you once again with boldness because of the finished work that our Lord Messiah Yeshua has done on our behalf. It's not of our own merits that we approach the throne of Lord. We know that it is by your mercy and by your grace that you have given us this position, this, this um, right to stand before you and to ask of you and to seek your face and to expect that you as our Heavenly Father are going to grant that which we're requesting. Namely, at this time, Lord, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to receive your words of life so that we can grow, so that we can be equipped, so that we can be ambassadors for your kingdom and for your name, so that we can uh, be an encouragement to the saints, so that we can be a source of conviction for sinners to, to uh, turn to repentance. Help us during this time to be circumspect, to take the matters that are being presented uh, with urgency because of the um, time in which we live. Speaking of the eschatology prophecy studies, we know that the signs all around us indicate that the uh, second coming of Yeshua is very near. We don't know exactly how close, but we can sense, uh, those of us who are watching, we can sense that uh, the time is drawing very near. So, Lord, help us to be prepared. And then in terms of the um, apologetic study at the end of the hour, the Trinity studies, Lord, just help us with texts that are difficult to wrestle with, to, difficult to grapple through, diff, difficult to work our way through, uh, because of um, even though we have the New Testament writings to give us the assurance of who Messiah truly is, 100% God, 100% man, truly God, truly man, fully God, fully man, and nevertheless, there are still so many questions in our minds as to um, how we can understand this when we read through the Tanakh and the Old Testament um, texts that have been preserved for us. So thank you for the challenges because they help us to grow. Be with each and every one of us. None of, none of us has all of the answers. We're all uh, in dependency upon one another to um, bring insights to the discussion a little bit here, a little bit there. And so may we um, have mercy on each other and um, understanding and patience with one another as we work through the issues to strengthen one another, not judge one another, but rather to um, see that each person brings a little bit of insight to the discussion and we all grow from the sharing. So thank you for this endeavor. Um, I pray that uh, my words will be coherent and that that which is of the spirit would pierce the heart and that which is of the flesh would just fall to the ground. And I'll be careful to give the praise and glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Okay, everyone, thanks for joining me for these live internet studies uh, week after week. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi and the uh, hour and a half long study is broken into two segments. First segment is an hour long. It's given over to an end time study called Eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. It is basically a study on the book of Revelation that we're working our way towards. If you look at my screen, you can see the topic number 15 really said 15 to 16 say book of Revelation. But we're working our way towards that using subjects that are building the momentum towards better properly understand the book of revelation so we went all the way back into the old testament we pulled in some key significant passages we looked at the book of daniel then we're now in this excursus kind of little side topic related to the main topic about antichrist we looked at the kind of european version of antichrist through the lens of robert van campen the non 
uh, anti, uh, Islamic version. Most of you listening to my uh, study, either by video format or audio format, are probably Christian of the persuasion that the Antichrist is going to come out of some form of European Union or revived Roman Empire. So he probably won't have any ties to Islam or won't be a Muslim cleric or anything like that. But there is another position that I'm trying to make you aware of that is that we need to consider. And this is the uh, position by Joel Richardson, who's done his homework. He's no, um, he's no lightweight, so you got to give him credit where credit's due. And the position is very tenable. Uh, in my understanding, it's very plausible. So we need to be prepared either way. Obviously, the true preparation is going to come from the Holy Spirit inside of us and our trust in God and in his Messiah, Yeshua. It's no, there's no amount of intellectual preparation that is going to ultimately shield us from the wicked actions that the Antichrist is going to pour out when the day comes. Whether he be from European stock or from um, Arabic Muslim stock or whatever, it doesn't matter. Um whether he's a Muslim or not is the point I'm trying to make. The actions that he's going to take against Jews and against Christians, it's going to be horrific either way. So we need to be prepared. And the preparation truly comes from trusting in God, reading his word, staying prayed up is the term we use right in Christian circles, um, staying prayed up, uh, having your heart in the right place, having your um, mind set on God's things and things of God rather than um, distracted by all of the uh, offers, all the shiny things that um, the world has to offer. So uh, make sure your heart is in the right place. Make sure you know who your Messiah truly is. Like I keep urging everyone at the end of my videos, you've got to know Jesus. You've got to know Yeshua in these end days. If you don't know him, then it doesn't matter what your position on Antichrist is. It doesn't matter who you think the Antichrist will be. You're not going to make it, right? So... We're in topic seven, excursus, the Islamic Antichrist per Joel Richardson. So let's jump over there. Will Islam be our future? A study of biblical and Islamic eschatology. And let's jump down to chapter five. This is where we are in comparing the biblical Antichrist and the Mahdi. Okay, so looking at Joel Richardson's book, which is available on Amazon.com, at Amazon.com, as well as his own website, Joel's Trumpet, I believe, joelstrumpet.org or joelstrumpet.com. And it's also available at answeringislam.org, which is the version I'm using right now in front of that you can see on your screen. Uh, look at the video links in the description below the videos. And I've made links to many of the res of those at least two or three resources where you can find Mr. Richardson's book. So if you'd like to support his ministry, uh, amazon.com is probably the easiest way. Well, looking at his book, last week we introduced this idea that in the Bible, the Antichrist is known to initiate or confirm this covenant with prominent leaders in Israel, i.e. either priests or the prime minister of Israel or Israel's um, uh, political or, or uh, uh, consultants or military consultants, whomever. He's known to initiate or, or even confirm a, a covenant that's already in existence one of the two the hebrew goes either way this seven-year treaty and so from that perspective we're looking at the parallel in islamic prophecy where the mahdi right remember the mahdi is the the muslim version of from their in their view since the mahdi is a good guy it's their view of ultimately the messianic figure the religious 
ruler who will come and and restore the uh, Islamic Caliphate and restore worldwide Muslim rule, etc. Uh, Islamic rule, etc., etc. He'd be the twelfth Imam. So he's a he's he is a political figure, but he's mainly a religious figure, if I understand his references correctly. His name or his title Mahdi. That's not his name, but it's one of his titles. And he will usher in uh, worldwide peace via Islam, according to their perspective. In the parallel, he is actually the Antichrist. He's not Jesus or any other figure. He's actually the Antichrist in the parallel accounts of the Bible. And as we know from reading our own Bible, the Antichrist is not someone that we should welcome with open arms. On the contrary, he's the He's the consummate wicked ruler who will seize control of Jerusalem one day and uh, seek to annihilate anyone who opposes him, uh, focusing most of his intense hatred uh, right there in the Middle East against Jewish people and then also against Christians, obviously. So what's interesting by way of parallel that we're learning is that he also in islamic circles makes a seven-year treaty like you can see on my screen right now the title the mahdi's seven-year treaty and this is again quite fascinating given the fact that christians are already aware of the seven-year peace treaty that antichrist is going to somehow be involved in so we scroll past that down a bit into mr richardson's notes and we find another parallel that the Mahdi is going to, or that the Antichrist is going to change the laws and the times, and then the Antichrist, uh, the, the, the Mahdi is also said to do the same thing. But let's just move on. Let's begin to entertain a discussion about the rider on a white horse. Now, again, what we're doing is we're just holding the Bible in one of our hands, and we're looking at the parallels between what the Bible teaches about this Antichrist figure, and we're holding loosely in one of our other hands, in one of our other hands, there's only one other hand, right? We're holding loosely in the other hand Islamic writings. This could be the Quran, this could be the Hadith, this could be any modern-day uh, Islamic teachers, professors, etc., etc. So we're holding that in the other hand. And we're noticing the parallels between these two religions and these two eschatological perspectives of the end times. So now let's start with the Bible, the rider on a white horse. So let's pick up our reading right here. This is Joel Richardson speaking about this Antichrist figure. The final similarity, and we're almost done with this section on Joel Richardson, then we can turn into the all of the discourse of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The final similarity between the Antichrist and the Mahdi will that we will discuss in this chapter, which is chapter five of his book, is the fact that both the Antichrist and the Mahdi are identified with a biblical passage that describes a rider on a white horse. Right? Remember from the book of Revelation, we'll probably have a quote here in a moment. Joel says, while this could be literal, it is most probably a symbolic picture of the two men. The amazing thing, he says, is that the origin of the biblical tradition of the Antichrist on a white horse and the origin of the Islamic tradition of the Mahdi on a white horse are both attributed to the same passage in the Bible. And I mentioned this earlier, but Joel is going to um, flesh this out as well. So let's, let's hear what he has to say. And then if he doesn't express the thoughts that I wanted to also convey, then I'll add to that. Joel says, the basis 
for the symbolic picture of both the Antichrist and the Mahdi on a white horse is the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation, which is what I was going to mention. And what we notice, Joel says, is that here the Apostle John is describing his vision of the release of the events that mark the beginning of the end times. Continuing, the picture is of Jesus holding a scroll on the outside of the scroll, right? Um, you have to picture this in your mind. If I can find a photo in... Um, post-production i'll go ahead and flash it on the screen but the picture is of jesus holding a scroll on the outside of the scroll are seven wax seals as each seal is broken a specific and distinct end time event is released and so now let's read this quote from the book of revelation john says i watched as the lamb that is jesus opened the first of the seven seals remember seven seals on the outside of a scroll and you can't the idea is that you can't read the contents of the scroll until you break not one two three or four or five six but all seven of the scrolls must be broken because all seven of the scrolls are sealing the contents of the scroll which this is no mere speculation as i might interject this has been verified archaeologically as we've uh, uncovered ancient scrolls that resembled this exact description. In fact, Robert Van Campen, who we quoted from earlier about the kind of the European Antichrist model, he is actually, before he passed away uh, a, short, a little over 20 years ago, he was the one of the world's foreknown, foremost, I'm sorry, um, private collectors of ancient archaeological scrolls, biblical scrolls, ancient historic scrolls. He had his own private collection. I think it was one of the largest in the world. And so he has had, he had, or I suppose his foundation or his family still has these scrolls in their possession. And sure enough, they are just like we're describing. A, a scroll rolled up with, with seven wax seals on the outside or five, depending on what purpose or how large the scroll was. So that's what's going on. And the point that's germane to our study is that the contents of the scroll cannot be accessed until all seven scrolls are open. So John continues in his revelation or in his, in his uh, record of Jesus' revelation. Then I, John says, I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked, this is John's words, I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So that's Revelation 6, 1 to 2. So we know that this is basically a description of the um, four horses of the apocalypse, and John is starting with the first horse. So Joel Richardson says, the seals that follow this rider are, I believe this listing here, I, I mean, uh, the seals that follow this right, unless I'm reading it wrong, and it's, this is a bit misleading. Um, but we'll get to this in, in time, so I'm not overly concerned that I might be reading this wrong here at this moment. Go back and read the uh, listing up for yourself, but let's see what Joel has to say about these particular seals and how it is uh, important for us when we're talking about Antichrist. So he says, so after that, the writer appears on the scene, the world, I'm sorry, so we see that after the writer appears on the scene, the world essentially free falls into the chaos that defines the last hour. We're going to find out in our next topic that when Yeshua describes these events uh, that are representational of the four horsemen, that Yeshua 
likens this to the initial birth pangs that a woman goes through when she's pregnant. So he calls these the uh, the beginning of birth pangs or something to that effect. The uh, the 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 initial labor pains. So the interpretation Joel says that many Bible scholars apply to this passage is thus. So now we're going to find a description that is fairly representational of Christian eschatological interpretive um, of interpretations of this particular passage. And I don't know who he quotes here. Let me scroll down a bit and see. Um, he doesn't sh show, but. Is this just some, some, somewhat a, of a generic interpretation? So it's fine if we don't know who the reader, who the uh, source is. But Joel writes it this way. Speaking of this first writer, the one on the right horse, he says the writer is given a white horse, which is an attempt to be an imitation of the white horse that Jesus is said to ride when he returns, right? Recall Revelation 19.11. Thus, the writer is an imitation Christ an imposter, an antichrist. And I think that interpretation is pretty spot on. Joel continues, the bow without any arrows that the writer carries is a false piece. The writer is pictured as one who emerges carrying with his rise to power a false promise of peace. This is in alignment, Joel says, with, with and may be a direct reference to the false peace treaty that Antichrist makes with Israel at the start of at the start of the seven-year period of his rule. Continuing, Joel says the crown on his head is obviously a reference to the position of authority and leadership that will be given to him. And then Joel says, and we see that the true motivation and bent of the writer is to conquer. So um, we're talking about this first horse of the four horsemen. Let me look at this picture again. So the one on the far left holding the bow, which you can see there are no arrows. And if you look carefully at the screen, you can see his crown. He is the Antichrist figure that we're referring to. He's the one that John saw in this vision that definitely does not represent Christ. It definitely does not represent Jesus returned to planet Earth. And yet we have to remember that Antichrist, the word anti there, can carry two meanings or two nuances. It can mean in place of Yeshua or in place of Messiah Christ, but it can also mean opposed in opposition to Christ, anti, of in place of and in opposition to. And so this fits perfectly what with what we understand the Antichrist is going to represent when he comes to earth. For those who have eyes to see, those whose hearts are guided by God's spirit and God's words, and thus they're not in a position where they're going to be deceived, and yet they still will be challenged. Um, when these events take place, for us, we will not mistake this person for Jesus. We won't think he's the true Messiah returned to planet earth. But Jesus himself predicted and forewarned that there will be many people who claim to be himself, that claim to be Messiah, that claim to be Jesus, that claim to be the Christ, and they're going to be even conducting what we might call lying signs and wonders, that is, miracles that are that may or may not even be authentic miracles, but the fact that they are deceptive is in the truth that they are not indicative of God's anointing on this individual. In other words, 
Satan himself can mimic and imitate miraculous things, and therefore people who aren't uh, protected by God's Spirit are the ones who are going to be easy prey. They're going to be saying, hey, there's Jesus, right? And they're going to flock here and there to these false messiahs. Well, the Antichrist is the consummate false messiah. That's the point I'm trying to make. And he comes as a rider on a white horse, which is an imitation of Jesus coming at the end of the age on a white horse, right? We already know Jesus is the rider of a white horse. So it's no wonder that people in that day will be so easily deceived because they won't, they won't know the truth. Their hearts have not been prepared. Their eyes are not opened by God's spirit, and therefore they don't have any way to, um, to uh, um, determine uh, truth from error. They're just operating under their own um, knowledge and, and, and um, understanding. Let's keep reading Joel Richardson. He says, in light of the identity and activity of the writer, then we are not surprised to find out that the events that follow his emergence onto the world scene are not in keeping with an age of peace, but rather an age of apocalyptic chaos. He's going to, at some point, remove the disguise that has probably been supernaturally um, kept there by God himself, not allowing Satan's true identity to be, be, uh, to be known by Israel or to be known by the rest of the world. Although, again, those of us who are alive during that day, who have studied our Bibles and have placed our trust in Yeshua, the, the, the true Messiah, and have a genuine relationship with God via the Holy Spirit, those of us, we will probably have strong suspicions about this character because of the events that will be um, associated with this particular political man or religious man, depending on what you know, what persona he portrays in his public, um, public uh, appearances. So we know that he will start out as a man of peace or look like a man who's got good intentions for everyone. He'll probably even bring the world to a place where it seems like all is well. Like, really, I mean, like what Christians should expect the true Prince of Peace Messiah should be able to accomplish. And what many religious Jews would even hope that their Messiah is going to accomplish. Um, peace in the Middle East. Um, peace in many places in the world. Some form of economic stability, right? Uh, things like that, that, that only someone who's got God's anointing on his life could supposedly accomplish. And yet we know from the Bible that three and a half years into his seven-year campaign, or seven-year um I don't know agenda, whatever you want to call it. I don't know what kind of title he wear is he going to be wearing. You know, is he going to declare himself some form of president or prime minister? So I don't know what type of of you know what we might say. How long he's going to be in office or how long he's supposed to hold whatever title he's going to be wearing religiously. I don't know if that if that's going to have some seven year um, time limit uh, attached to it. But the point I am trying to make is that we know that. Three and a half years into the seven-year treaty, he turns on Israel, attacks Jerusalem, uh, um, commandeers uh, Jerusalem as his headquarters, and then launches um, uh, attacks also on anyone who opposes him, establishes his mark system, it, uh, sets up some form of temple, um, some, some form of what we say image, 
and demands that all the world worship it, etc., etc. So this is, of course, going to be sheer horror, not just for Israel, but eventually the rest of the world is going to be shocked. But at that point in time, it'll be too late for many people because they have already placed their trust in him and their hearts are not open to receive the truth and the gospel. And therefore, they're going to become um, collateral damage. They will be victims to his his intense wrath and hatred and tribulation uh, persecution that's going to be poured out. But there is still hope. It's not a hopeless situation. Jesus is still the true king and the Holy Spirit is still um, here, present with us. And I believe that there will be a, a time and a place and, a, and an opportunity to trust in Yeshua during that day, as difficult as it might seem. Let's keep reading Joel Richardson. Joel says, apparently, this is not a problem, speaking about this leader um, turning from his peace-seeming endeavors into a man of chaos. He says, apparently, this idea of turning into chaos is not a problem for the Islamic scholars who generally adopt a very arbitrary pick-and-choose approach to the Bible, which is typical of someone who's not really reading the Bible from eyes that have been opened by truth. Um, Joel says, for in seeing the Antichrist on the white horse with a crown and conquering, Muslim scholars see a clear picture of the Mahdi. So let's begin to kind of shift a bit and talk about Antichrist paralleling the Mahdi or Mahdi paralleling Antichrist in these particular matters. Joel says, as mentioned in the earlier chapter on the Mahdi, the early Muslim transmitter of Hadith, the Ka'ab al-Akhbar, is quoted as saying, Ka'ab al-Akhbar, I believe uh, the pronunciation there. I could be wrong. I'm not versed in Arabic. Um, there's a quote from this particular Islamic scholar, quote, I find the Mahdi recorded in the books of the prophets. For instance, uh, the book of Revelation says, quote, and I saw and behold a white horse. He that sat on him went forth, went forth conquering and to conquer, end quote. So that's a, a lifted from a, an Islamic scholar. And Joel Richardson adds these words. So in conclusion, we see that several of the most unique and distinguishing aspects of the biblical Antichrist's person, mission, and actions are matched to quite an amazing degree by the descriptions of the Mahdi as found in the Islamic traditions. And as we're drawing this part to a close, as I mentioned, um, uh, we'll be poised and ready to start looking at more of the uh, prophecies from our own Lord Messiah Yeshua as has been recorded for us in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke accounts of the Olivet Discourse. Joel concludes by saying, and now even further we see that Muslim scholars actually apply biblical verses about the Antichrist to their awaited Savior, the Mahdi. This must be seen as quite ironic, if not entirely prophetic and that will do it for the notes from joel richardson's book that we've been borrowing the islamic antichrist we only just borrowed notes from chapter five but uh, i really recommend that you go out and access the book whatever in whatever way you can either buy it or read it online you can download it as a pdf document from his own website <clears throat> so basically in closing and we'll make this part this segment one a little shorter this week because i don't want to start into uh part two or i'm sorry not part two start into the next um topic but i will show it to you 
So next week, we will be poised to begin topic eight, Yeshua's Olivet Discourse, part one. And then we'll move into topic nine, Yeshua's Olivet Discourse, part two. We'll, so we'll, we'll look at that for a few weeks, maybe even a good month. We don't want to rush through the topics. At least I don't want to. I know those of you who have been watching and following the series feel that maybe it's a bit dragging on. But my understanding is that the only way to get the proper preparation and appreciation for a topic such as eschatology which is so multifaceted is to go back through the each topic or to um uh, examine each topic slowly methodically so that we don't miss things and to allow the holy spirit to show us things week after week if i just whiz through this entire study in say 18 weeks like it might like the the um, index might suggest I don't think I would have really enough time to cover every topic in in, in with with the thoroughness that really is owed to each topic. So I, I thank you that you're patient. I um I uh, solicit your patience and um I hope that you're able to follow along with the studies. If you have questions, I know that the topics can be confusing. Go ahead and write into me and I'll do what I can do. So going back to our kind of summary, so we're really comparing these two antichrist figures in these two different kind of religious traditions, Christianity on one hand and Islam uh, on the other hand. And again, at the end of the day, honestly, it really doesn't matter which model you embrace, whether you're of the tradition that he's from a European uh, background or whether you believe like Joel Richardson that he's coming going to emerge from some Muslim controlled nation or and or he will be received by Islam as their 12th uh, imam etc etc no matter which model you embrace the using the bible as our guide that's our foundation right not the quran not the hadith those are those are those represent a, a different religion than christianity and in some cases they represent a competitive religion or a counterfeit religion so the bible is going to be our only true authority for us as christians we believe with a perfect faith that this is the authoritative view of the end times the one that we can bank our lives on the one that we can trust god to be accurate the one that we can pour all of our heart and soul into uh researching right that's the one that we're going to put all of our cards on the table for put all of our money on if we were betting individuals the bible is the one so using the bible as our anchor and i'm closing with this like i said this is going to be a shortened uh version of our study tonight we must, we must, we must, first and foremost, be certain of our relationship with God through the Holy Spirit via the person and work of Messiah Yeshua. That's the first starting point. Don't try to crack open the Bible and the book of Revelation without first having a relationship with the God of the Bible and having a relationship with the Son. You've got to start there. If you don't have that, then all of your... Uh, research is ultimately going to fall flat. It's not going to be very um, accurate or thorough. You're always going to have questions. You're always going to have gaps in your understanding. You've got to have a relationship with the author of the Bible first. So given that as our starting point, once we do that, it becomes apparent to us that even if we're wrong about who the Antichrist is, we choose one model and it turns out to be the other, what we've learned from the Bible is that there is going to come a time on planet earth when we not just as christians but we as human beings 
are going to have to prove who we trust in and who we believe in. It's coming down to if you don't trust in God, then the Antichrist is going to force you to give your allegiance to him. He's no longer the devil himself. Is no longer going to simply sit idly by and allow humans to sort of dilly-dally and waffle in their decision as to whether God is really God or someone else is should be uh, given the title of God. The, the, the devil is going to demand, as it were, the worship of humans. He's going to demand via his puppet, the Antichrist, the allegiance, bowing down to his image, taking his mark or the number of his name like we, we've read about. What are you going to do then? Whose side are you going to take? How will you survive in that day? So read your Bible, pray, allow the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth to you so that when that time comes, no matter who the Antichrist is, whether it's a European guy or whether it's a Muslim cleric, it doesn't matter. And when that time comes, you will have already been prepared and God will have already prepared you. So it is a partnership between your free will and God's anointing and power in your life. You will already be prepared to face whatever persecution comes your way. We most likely will lose our lives, but that's okay because Yeshua has the power to resurrect us and to bring us back with him when he returns to planet earth to finally defeat the antichrist and establish his thousand year kingdom on planet earth oh main oh main let's close with that that'll do it for eschatology a biblical study of end time events these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture to your congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to 
take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. We're looking at this verse that you can see on your screen, Psalm 110 verse 1, as has been discussed by the Christian denomination, non-Trinitarian denomination known as Biblical Unitarianism. And the uh, website of BiblicalUnitarian.com presents this verse in a manner to suggest that the Lord of this passage, who's sitting at the right hand of Yahweh, God the Father in heaven, is the human Jesus, the one that is... Uh, the son of Mary, born of Mary and Joseph, but nevertheless did not exist until he was brought into existence by his mom and dad, right? So just like all humans, he was born into the world. Let's read the psalm in question. Psalm 1, basically, verse 1, although we are bringing in some discussion about verse 5, because it also uses the word Lord, and in the Hebrew, Adonai or Adoni. We don't know for certainty, 100% certainty, but let's take a look. So the psalm reads out of the NASB version of your Bible, you can see on your screen, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the clause that we're mostly focusing on is the one you can see and that I've got highlighted the Lord says to my Lord where we've got an all caps L-O-R-D and then we've got a capital L lowercase O-R-D and so there's two Lords in the passage when we turn over to the Hebrew like I like you can see on my screen right now and I'll just highlight the same passage there but let me read the, the psalm in its entirety or the I'm sorry the verse in its entirety uh, David Mizmor, Neum Yahweh Ladoni, Shev Limini Ad Ashit Oivecha Hadom Lurag Lecha. The clause in question that I've got highlighted says Neum Yahweh Ladoni, which is made up of the noun Neum, which could be translated as oracle or prophecy. And then we've got YHVH, which is the tetragrammaton name of God, Yahweh. And then we've got Ladoni, which is a, a, um, combination of a preposition le, which is like unto or to, coupled with the word adoni, or could be adonai, depending on which uh, translation you understand it, but it's this Lord. And we can also take a look at the Greek real quick. Let me back up and let's see. So this is from, let me just show you a little bit. This is from Greek doc dot github dot github.io website owned and operated by a man by the name of john barich and he's a christian uh translator he he knows greek and he has taken the septuagint greek which is actually psalm 109 in the, in the translate in the uh, septuagint but it's psalm 110 in our english bibles and he's taken verse one and he's represented two different original greek manuscripts on the left side as you can see on your screen it's alexandrinus and on the right side as you can see it's vaticanus and when we look at this psalm in the english it's represented by a kind of a modified version of the kjv um or 
um, maybe uh, J- uh, John Barrich's own translation. A Psalm of David, Yahweh said to my Lord, with a capital L there for Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then we have the Hebrew represented on, once again. And now we have the two Greek uh, representations, which if you can see the first clause here, the one in brackets, to David Salmas. And then on the right side, it said Salmas to David. And so they're basically the same, except for they swapped the word Psalm and David around, but the meaning is identical. Everything else that follows after that, except for some very minor punctuation, is identical in the two manuscripts. So let's just borrow the one on the left, the Alexandrinus, which reads again, To David Salmas, Apen, Ha, Kurias, To Kurio Mu, Kama, Kathu, Ek, Dezion Mu, Kama, Heos, An, Thotus, Ek, Thrusu, Hupapadion, Ton, Padon, Su. And the clause that we're looking at most closely is Apen, Ha, Kurias, To Kurio Mu. Says the Kurios, the Yahweh, the Lord, to the Kuriomu, the Lord of me. Or when we translate it back into English, we don't say Lord of me, we say to my Lord. But interesting by way of translator note is that the Greek translators took the original Hebrew of Neum, which was an oracle, a noun, and turned it into a verb of apen, which is the Greek word for speak or said or something like that. So what do we make of this particular psalm? Well, again, without dragging the introduction out too long, remember, we're either dealing with a human who's sitting at the right hand of God who's been exalted and has been raised to a position that no other human really either deserves to sit at or has sat at before, if it's literal, or and or we're dealing with a person who is possibly more than human, right? He's He has divine qualities. He exists in some form of equality with God because he's sitting in a position where he's co-reigning like a regent king he's reigning right alongside god he's in the throne room position where he's facing towards his subjects right he's not sitting in a throne facing the one who's on the throne he's actually seated in a position where his purview is that he's facing the subject so he's co-ruling this kingdom and so we know that these uh, this uh, view is borrowed from the book of Daniel where Daniel describes this vision where he sees the one like the son of man approach the ancient of days and is given a kingdom where he rules with authority over the peoples of the earth obviously Daniel was speaking of a future event because presently this son of man in Daniel's day was not ruling over a kingdom over planet Earth in righteousness. So it was a future prophecy. But what makes this particular psalm, let me shrink that, what makes this particular psalm interesting for us as we're examining its meaning, we're going to move into our New Testament passages shortly here, What makes this interesting is that when David wrote this psalm, and this is attested to David's authorship by the Lord Yeshua himself, right? He says, David says by the Holy Spirit. David wrote, the Lord says to my Lord, or the the oracle of God to to my master, right? Neum Yahweh Ladoni. David wrote in a way that suggests that David was seeing not just a prophetic event that was future, 
right? One of his descendants seated at the right hand of God. But David was actually kind of like a prophetic fly on the wall and was actually per, uh, privy to a conversation between God and this one seating at his right hand that was taking place in the heavens in real time. David said, the Lord says to my Lord, not will say to my Lord someday or will say to my descendant someday or even will say to the one who will be my Lord someday. As we entertain the thoughts behind, uh, is David looking into the future by the Spirit or is he looking into the heavens in real time by the Spirit? Etc. Etc. Now we know the part sit at my right hand. It still speaks of either a current event or a future event that Yeshua finally fulfilled. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there are some future-facing aspects to the prophecy. Right, sit at this place, suggesting that um, the enemies that will be brought under subjection to you are not yet subjected to you, but one day they will. So stay where you're at until I, your father, make this a reality, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So God is one who's speaking uh, to this individual sitting at his right hand. To make the matters a bit more complicated, even though Biblical Unitarian didn't make it their point to highlight verse 5 in their exegesis, um, they simply take the position that the Masoretes have preserved a tradition that is accurate. That in verse 1, Adoni is the human ruler and then in verse 5 where it says the lord is at your right hand david is describing god now being at the right hand of this king which is not necessarily in the heavens but is metaphorical of god being your power as if it were as if god were personified into um, a force that, that a king could wield or access when he needs it. God himself is at your right hand. And the Masoretic tradition that's been preserved by the Hebrew on your right side of your screen is Adonai al-Yamincha. Adonai is the Masoretic way of saying God's name, but using the vowel marking, of using the Hebrew letters of A-D-O-N-N, with the um the the personal um affirmation that this adon this lord is the lord of me he's my lord literally my lord so adonai just like adoni is also my lord adonai is more emphatically my lords plural but when you're speaking of god it's a kind of a majestic plural so adoni is my lord adonai is also my lord but we just usually translate it as the lord Sometimes it's my Lord, but usually the Lord. But the point that's germane to our study is that it's not Adoni. According to the Masoretic understanding, it's Adonai. And so you can see your vowel markings over on the right side of the screen. If you can read Hebrew, it says Adonai. So who is this figure in verse 1 to which God says, I will be at your right hand and I will protect you and I will be your, your uh, source of power and might and etc. etc. Now, um... Without getting too ultra-technical, let me just bring up this graphic for you. Adonai on the right side of your screen is the vowel marking for when we're indicating God, right? A-D-O-N-A-I with the little commas underneath the noon, the noun, I'm sorry, the N letter that's uh, in the Hebrew. And the little vowel marking, which looks like a capital T on your screen that's circled in red, that reads commas down at the bottom, the lower right side of your screen. That is the vowel marking supplied hundreds of years after the script was actually written. 
Now, right, even up to a thousand years, I believe, from when the original source was when David wrote the book of Psalms. Then a thousand years later, the Masoretes came and inked in all these little dots and dashes to represent the vowel markings, the vowel sounds that are represented by the Greek, I'm sorry, by the Hebrew, which is originally all consonants. So if we can trust what they preserve for us, then in verse 5, we have Adonai, like on the right side of your screen, which is God the Father, Yahweh, but without using the Tetragrammaton letters YHVH. Adonai is God. It's pronounced as Adonai, and it's a title reserved exclusively for God. Comparatively, on the left side of your screen, we have Adoni, lowercase a-d-o-n-i, and underneath that same letter N, the Nun letter, in the lower left side of your screen, represented by what looks like a period or a dot, is the Hebrew vowel marking chirik and chirik indicates an a long i sound adon i'm sorry a long uh, uh, what sounds like a long e adoni and thus this according to the masoretic tradition and to rabbinic jews and to biblical unitarian and other non-trinitarian outfits this represents a human or sometimes it refers to angels um it, I write that it nearly always refers to human superiors. I'm not exclusive there. They believe that it exclusively refers to humans and never refers to God. We've already seen that this is not the case, that Adonai can in fact refer to God depending on what the context is and depending on what the verse is trying to convey. What makes this a little more challenging is that both of those words, Adonai and Adoni, now we turn to a different graphic on my screen, they are both actually represented by the same root word, Strong's number 113, which is Adon, which is simply translated Lord. Stripped of any context, we don't know what Lord is. Is it Lord God? Is it Lord David? Lord? Is it Lord Abraham when Sarah's talking to him? Is it Lord as an angel of the Lord? Uh, my Lord, you know, like uh, um, Manoach, uh, Samson's parents, referred to the angel of the Lord as Lord. Uh, speaking of the angel of the Lord, Gideon also, when the angel of the Lord showed up and addressed him, he bowed down and referred to this angel of the Lord as Lord, but it's lowercase l, meaning Adonai. So when you look at Strong's number 113 on the left side of your screen, that's the root word for Adonai. So Adon is translated into as Adonai in many cases in the Bible. And then the other Strong's number on the right side of the screen, Adonai by Strong's, indicating God's, God's identity. But the root is still Adoni or Adon, Strong's number 113, the root. So we just it gives, just gives rise to Adonai because it's my Lord, the Lord of me, but emphatically it is God in the context. So we jumped through Matthew chapter 22. We jumped through, um, close that. Oops. Uh, give me a second. I closed too many tabs there. Um, we jumped through Mark chapter 12. So Matthew and Mark, and we looked at, we jumped to Luke chapter 20, where these are all gospel accounts of Jesus having this argument with the Pharisees about this particular passage. And it seems to be that Yeshua is also aware of the challenge slash puzzle slash riddle slash equivocation slash ambiguity created by the fact that David is the highest position of human leadership in Israel. He's the king of Israel. And yet David addresses someone, whether human or divine, as my Lord or the Lord of me in Greek, kudiomu. Who is this person? Well, 
we know that this person is a future descendant of David, but if that's the case, then why didn't David simply address him as Ben? The Lord says to the son of me, the Lord says to my son, sit at my right hand. If David was simply trying to convey that this future king of Israel was indeed one of his offspring, someone that would sit on the throne because God promised to David that he would have offspring that would always be on the throne, that he would never lack a man to sit in that position. And indeed, David understood that promise that God made to him. Then, if that's the case, if it's as simple as that, then why, when Yeshua has this dialogue with the religious leaders of his day, why then did they properly acknowledge that Messiah was David's son, but yet how could David call him Lord? Why couldn't they say, to Yeshua, well, the reason David calls him Lord is because Lord is means that he's a descendant who's higher than David simply because chronologically he call, falls after David. And therefore, since David uh, is not the king at the time when this future descendant will be ruling, therefore David has to acknowledge that this is the king, and David therefore calls him Lord. But that doesn't fit the description of what the first century expectation of Lord and descendancy implied. Yeshua is aware of the tension created by the fact that David is addressing a human person using a title that's greater than he himself, David the king. Think about it. David's offspring, immediate offspring, was Solomon. But yet David didn't address Solomon as Lord, right? I don't find anywhere in the Bible where David says to, to Solomon, uh, my Lord, sit at the right hand of God until blah, 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 or anything like that. And yet David knows that this is his own offspring, says to the Lord of me. He's, he's someone that's David's master. Well, Yeshua knows that this means that the word Lord, which the Greek rendering is kudios, but the Hebrew is either Adonai or Adonai, depending on which view you take. Yeshua knows that this must mean that this future descendant of David is in a position exalted above David, and Yeshua pushes the envelope that this means that this figure must be divine. Otherwise, it's a, it's a non-issue. If this Lord figure is not divine, if this Lord figure that Yeshua is having this discussion with is merely a human Lord, then there wouldn't be any puzzle. There wouldn't be any equivocation. There wouldn't be any conflict with the rulers. Yeshua would be saying to them, well, of course he's just a human, like Biblical Unitarian wants us to imagine. Of course, this Lord, Messiah, is just a human. So, you guys are just confused that the Son of David is also the Lord of David, but he's still a human. Right? Yeshua should have explained it to them, but he doesn't. And the, the, the leaders aren't able to answer Yeshua. Why? Because it's more than that. And I think Biblical Unitarian, I'm quite sure of it, they have lost sight of that part of the context of this somewhat ambiguous title, Lord, or Kudias, or um, Adonai, or Adonai. And before I jump into the other uh, resources, I'll tell you this one last thing. There's an argument that, well, what if the Masoretes really meant Adonai in both spots of chapter of verse 1 and chapter, uh, chapter 110 of Psalm, verse 1 and verse 5? So the Lord says to Adonai, and then when we get down to verse 5, it says, Adonai is at your right hand. Because the most natural reading is that the person in verse 5 is the same person in verse 1. And yet the Masoretes wrote Adonai in verse 5 as, as, if, as if it's a divine person, and yet Adonai in verse 1 as if it's a human. But what if the Masoretes were wrong? Right, they could be wrong. Um, in fact, I entertain the notion that um, there's a probability that they are wrong, that it's not Adonai, but it's truly Adonai in verse 1. But what if they were actually covered up, covered their tracks and put Adonai in verse 5, but really, truly, David meant Adonai. 
meaning David was always always seeing a human in both spots. We'll talk about that in time. I'm not prepared to give my answer just yet, but for those who are watching this video and have those types of questions, um, I want you to begin to look at Psalm 110 in its entirety and begin to look at the background and the context of this person who's described and remember to go back to the book of daniel chapter 7 and cross-reference the son of man with the ancient of days pictured uh, prophecy there and also to corroborate this idea that jesus is aware that the person that's mentioned in the book of psalms is himself he knows that he's the, this one but also why is it that jesus makes a point to um contrast the differences between a mere descendant of david and someone who is the Lord of David, as if this person is more than just a human descendant. Yeshua is pushing the envelope. Research that on your own, and in time, maybe next week, maybe the week after, I'll go ahead and um, um, discuss more on this idea of what if it's Adonai in both spots, okay? So for now, let's jump into the book of Acts briefly and read this. Starting in chapter 2, verse 22, these are the words of Peter. And I think I read, I may have read some of this earlier, but I'll read it again for us uh, because this is where I want to start this week. I don't know how far I'll get into this. Um, Peter says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death, since, Peter reminds him, it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then Peter starts introducing these quotes from David about this messianic figure that God raised from the dead. And so we get this quote from a psalm that's not Psalm 110, but it starts to introduce this idea of a future ruler of Israel who would first be... Um, uh, would would first die, but then be raised by God, by the power of God, and then be exalted to the right hand. So, uh, verse 25, for David says of him. Now, interestingly, if you read the psalm that David, uh, that the Peter's quoting here, the psalm actually is written as if David is speaking of himself. And yet we know that prophetically, many of the psalms, have David as their initial, perhaps maybe even partial or prophetic um, uh, antecedent, and yet um, in a messianic way, they look forward to the Messiah. They've been used, utilized, and recognized by the New Testament writers authoritatively by the Holy Spirit, of course, that they are ultimately pointing to the greater king who is David's descendant, right? So, I saw the Lord continually before me because he's at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Notice right away that whoever is writing in this psalm, which is David, he says, I saw the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Who is this person in the psalm writing about? Who is this Lord that's continually before him? And that is at his right hand, at the right hand of the writer. Is it David addressing God, recognize that God is at David's right hand? That's a possibility. 
or is it the words of the Messiah speaking about God his Father who's at his right hand? That God his Father is at his right hand. Remember that position of power and protection and also authority. That God is at the right hand of a king. That's not to be confused with the Messiah sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's slightly different. They both use the phrase right hand. But there's a bit of different nuance between which context and imagery you should uh, uh, know that's taking place. But otherwise... um, we could have David speaking. We could have God's. I'm sorry. We could have um, uh, uh, Messiah speaking. But it's probably not God speaking who says, "I saw the Lord continually before me." Right? God putting a son in front of him because my son is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Well, that's that that certainly doesn't seem to fit the context. Yet we know that the Messiah is at the right hand of God. And so if God is speaking, saying that uh, I, God, saw the Lord, my son, Messiah, Yeshua, continually before me because he, my son, is at my right hand, right? That's the imagery of Psalm 1101. My Messiah, my son is at my right hand, God speaking, right? Yahweh says to Adonai or Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Okay, that doesn't work. God, God, the father is never shaken, Right? That's just established. So we can kind of just cross out the possibility that this is God speaking in first person. Instead, it's more likely that it's either David speaking about God being positioned at his right hand in a place of authority and a place of protection and mighty and might, or it's the Messiah speaking about his own father sitting at his right hand, or not sitting, but at his right hand. Um, to protect him and to give him power. Notice the word sitting there is probably not in verse 5 of Psalm 110, nor is it in this particular psalm. So let's keep reading. Verse 26, the psalmist writes, Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue was overjoyed. Remember, you have to picture when you're reading this as a Christian that this is either David writing about himself and his relationship with God and seeing his future descendant, as well as Messiah reading the words of David and applying them to himself. Messiah speaking in first person, therefore my heart, Jesus says, my heart was glad and my tongue was overjoyed. But David wrote it in his own first person account. But now Messiah can read these and realize that these messianic prophecies were speaking of him. So we have to allow for that kind of overlapping of David speaking of himself and yet Jesus applying the words to himself. And then the Christian authors, such as Peter, realizing that ultimately these words are applicable to Messiah. Moreover, this writer puts, my flesh will also live in hope. That could be David, could be Yeshua, could be both. For, verse 27, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Who said those words? Was it David who said those words? Or or is it Messiah prophetically saying those words that when Jesus finally read the Psalms after he was a lot born, brought in as a human into the world, he read those words and realized, ah, these words are my words because uh, David spoke of me. Now, here's your challenge. If it was David speaking those words, 
then watch what happens. Let's keep reading. Verse 28. You have made known to me the ways of life. Either David could have said that or Yeshua could have said that. Speaking of God the Father. They're both addressing God the Father, but who is the addressee? Who wrote the words? Is it David? Is it Yeshua? That's the question. They're both talking to God when they say you. You have known to me. Made to me. You, O God. You, O Yahweh. Or in Yeshua's own words, you, O Father. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. End. So Peter stops his quotation from the from the psalm there. But notice what Peter does. If it was merely David who wrote those words and not the master Yeshua who was acknowledging his identification with those words, watch what Peter says to these Jewish people that are gathered there listening to his drasha, his sermon. He says, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So, verse 30, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to do what? To seat one of his descendants on his throne. He, David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection, not of David himself, but of the Christ. So what is Peter doing? Peter is acknowledging that David wrote the psalm, but David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, like Yeshua said, David, under the Spirit, was speaking of the Messiah as the one who would not be abandoned to Hades, of the Christ, his descendant, who would not be left in the grave to, for his body to rot and decay, but would indeed be raised up by God, his father and David's descendant. So David was not saying that those words are mine. Now, David was writing under the power of the Spirit. How much he knew about his future descendant, we can't say for certain. How much of a picture God was revealing to him, we, we can't say with absolute certainty. But what we can say with certainty is that by the time of the New Testament era, Peter, under the power of the Spirit, which has been authorized now by, by God and, and uh, canonized for us and authorized, and, um, uh, made authoritative for us as New Testament uh, writings, biblical writings. Peter was verifying for us now that when we read those words in that psalm, the, which is not Psalm 110, by the way, when we read those words, we can now know that David, even if he was in partial fulfillment or antecedent fulfillment or um, near-far prophecy, whatever, if he was just um hinting at his own life ultimately this must refer to jesus why because david was di david died and was buried and did not resurrect yet you know he will resurrect someday according to um, old testament prophecies according to resurrection but notice as we keep reading in verse 31 david looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection not of david but of the christ and that he was neither abandoned to hades nor did his flesh suffer decay Contrastingly, David's soul, or David's body, I should say, David's body, uh, we don't want to say it was abandoned to Hades, but we can say it was resting in the grave. David's flesh definitely suffered decay. His body decayed. Why? Because his time of resurrection was not then. David died and his body rotted away. But by comparison, Jesus died, was buried, but he didn't stay in the ground. 
He was resurrected. So how does this um, play back into Psalm 110 and verse 1 and verse 5 and our discussion about is is Messiah merely human or is he divine? Let's let Peter continue saying his words because now he's going to bring in Psalm 110, but it's within the context of his earlier quote. So Peter continues in verse 32. It is this Jesus whom God raised up. He's contrasting with the idea that it's not David that got raised up uh, per that psalm where his body didn't suffer decay. It's Yeshua, the Messiah, the one we call Lord. He's the one that God raised up. A fact, Peter says, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, verse 33, since he has been exalted. Now, notice he's going to start transitioning. When he says exalted, he's going to pull in these themes that are already written in the Psalm 110 from our passage, right? Since he has been exalted at the right hand of God. Now stop. This this idea of being exalted at God's right hand, even if it's a human Messiah only, who else has ever been exalted to the right hand of God? Do I have an answer? Anyone? Wow, the silence speaks volumes. Why? Because not even King David was exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. No human being has ever been exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. And yet Jesus was raised up by God, not David. Jesus was raised from the grave. His body did not see decay. And in verse 33, Peter explicitly says that he has been exalted at the right hand of God and has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father. He has poured out this which you both see and hear. So he's speaking about Pentecost, right? This is Acts chapter 2 and the festival of Shavuot. But the point I'm trying to emphasize for a moment for you to stop and wrestle with and to chew on is as we're having this discussion with Biblical Unitarians and those who are not Trinitarians. And this argument over, is the figure in Psalm 1101, the one seated at God's right hand, is he merely human or is he divine? And who is the person in verse 5 sitting at the right hand of someone else? Is it Adonai? Is it Adonai? If, in, in the end, it's almost a moot point. Whether it's Adonai or Adonai, it doesn't matter. The point really is this. The person seated at the right hand of God is a very unique person and is a is a spot that no one else ever has occupied and never will occupy ever jesus is the only one who is at it at that point now i say it's a moot point in terms of adoni versus adonai but it's not a moot point as to the meaning behind being exalted at the right hand what we've lost in our first in our 21st century is the idea that being seated at the right hand is a position of equality with God as in co-ruling with God. God does not share his rulership with just anyone, human or otherwise. Understand what I'm saying here? God's authority is established as the highest authority there is. Therefore, if God seats a figure at his right hand facing towards his subjects, and this person has a kingdom that's given by God and rules over the, that God, God's subjects, then this figure is being identified as equal with God in that fashion. That's the point that Yeshua also uh, is bringing without saying it so in your face that it's that it it can't be received because it's so shocking. How is it that David referred to his dis- descendant as Lord? If David knew that it was just his son, the Hebrew word Ben, 
Why does David call him Lord? So captured in this word Lord must be the idea, at least in the first century, that this figure Lord is someone exalted at God's right hand, is someone who is recognized as co-equal with God on some level. And this is where the rub is for those who are non-Trinitarians, those who are human Jesus onlyers, right? I'm just I'm creating a phrase that I've never heard before. It's my own human Jesus onlyers, right? <laughs> Um, human Jesus onlyism. <laughs> All right, like KJV onlyism. All right, so people who believe that Jesus merely a human is only a human. How can you be equal with God on in any fashion? Now I know they're probably going to say, well, in the spirit, you know, we have also been raised to God, and we were seated in heavenly places with God as well. But that doesn't make us divine. Ah, but the Bible is not only giving us the divinity of the Messiah using this passage. We're not cherry picking people. I'm not saying that this is the only place in the Bible that that outlines or defines Jesus' divinity. Far from it. There are other passages, I've already mentioned this before, but how can God create the world through Jesus if Jesus wasn't in existence until the first century? And last time I checked, the world was not created in the first century, right? You got a problem there with your logic if you think that Jesus is merely a human, and yet God created the world through Jesus, even if you don't think that Jesus is the creator, which... Granted, that's an argument, right? I believe that Jesus is the creator, but there are people who believe that he isn't. Some people think he's just an agent, right? Like um, Joseph Good, like um, Anthony Buzzard. They believe that Jesus is merely an agent. Even the heck, even the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is the first creature created by God who then created the rest of the, the cosmos. So at least even the Jehovah's Witnesses give Jesus more than human status, right? They, they take a step. They have a higher Christology than biblical Unitarian is what I'm trying to say. But all of that is within the context of the New Testament portraying our Messiah as more than human in more than one place. So even if this psalm has to be thrown out because of its ambiguity, let's say we... Uh, Trinitarians and non-Trinitarians go to court in God's courtroom and we're arguing over the, the exact meaning of Adoni versus Adonai. And I think I'll draw my study to a close with this because I'm ranting and I'm standing on my soapbox and I'm not, I can see I'm not going to get to my study. So we'll leave off with this. Even if we were brought into, we brought the psalm into court as our evidence, and it so happens often in courtroom scenes, evidence is brought before the judge, right? You have the prosecuting attorney on one side and the defending attorney on the other side, and they bring this evidence before the judge, and because of its ambiguity or its um, equivocation or because of the, uh, its uh, uncertainty, the judge says, you know what? We're going to throw that evidence out. We can't, it's not admissible in court. Sorry, neither one gets to use it. So the evidence is nullified. It's rendered null and void. We can't use it. We have to use something else to prove our argument even if we had to throw psalm 110 out because we can't decide whether it's adonai versus adonai who's sitting where who's who is it is he human is he divine and so in the end if god the father said okay fine you both win and you both lose throw out psalm 110 sorry even the worms ate up psalm 110 in the dead sea scrolls cave sorry it hasn't been preserved so that we can know exactly which hebrew was original right by god's providence the worms ate up psalm 110 we don't have it right that's not a joke that's reality people but even if we threw that out even if we throw it out and therefore we have to remove um Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of Jesus quoting from Psalm 110. We throw that, that uh, uh, conversation out as well. It still doesn't change the fact that we have other passages. I'm not close with this. We have other passages in the Bible that Jesus utilizes that the New Testament writers also utilize to demonstrate that Jesus is divine. 
right? So we are not guilty of cherry picking and 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 um, resting all of our argument on this single bit of evidence that is somewhat questionable, somewhat um, um, uh, mysterious, somewhat ambiguous, or or uh, you know um, equivocal. We we don't know what to make of Psalm 110. Did the Masoretes really alter it? Did they really change it from Yahweh to Adonai, or from Adonai to Adonai, or from Adonai to Adonai? You know that whole um, uh, uh, discussion that we've been having is you know what really can we trust from the Masoretic test? Well, I'm going to close with this. I'll tell you what, we'll pick this up next week. What I want to do is I want to, I keep showing you guys this, but I never get to it. How did the scribes alter Psalm 110? Did they really alter it? Maybe they didn't, right? This is a hotly contested issue as well. Did the scribes, the ancient scribes, change things? Did it really say Yahweh in one spot and they changed it to Adonai or change it from Adonai to Adonai or change it from Adonai to Adonai? Right? What did the Hebrew really read originally? And then we've got something a thousand years later that reads something slightly different. We don't know. We don't know. Okay, those are some questions we'll begin to look at. There's a commentary from a Christian author, Pastor David Guzik, that I think is well trusted. We'll look at his commentary in time. We'll look at um, um, Messianic Jewish apologist Michael Brown, um, Dr. Michael Brown, he wrote a commentary set called uh, Answering Jew Jewish Objections to Jesus, and we'll look at his notes from uh, the objection of Psalm 110, does not say Messiah is Lord. We'll look at his answer to that. And then we also have Tim Haig's article about the Tetragrammaton name and the, and the word Lord. If I can find some uh, resources there, I'd share with you. I was reading through a little bit of that earlier, and I didn't find what I was looking for, but we might uh, utilize that. And then we have uh, kind of a layman's discussion on this, rather than using um, seminarians and pastors and those that versed in Hebrew and Greek. Let's see what just ordinary people like you and I um, think about this. So this is kind of a blog uh, discussion about this particular psalm, uh, just from a non non-scholarly perspective. And then the last two resources, um, I don't think I'm going to use this, Psalm 110, uh, 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 reconsidered. I read through this this week and it doesn't, let me remove it from my bookmark there. It doesn't have anything really that I want to uh, utilize. So I'm going to take that one out. But I do want to look at the human Jesus, the human Messiah Jesus, the human Jesus.org has a blog post or website where they've got an article entitled Adonai or Adoni. We do know. And I think this is a non-Trinitarian perspective. And we'll look at that in time as well. But that'll do it for Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. And wow, what a fantastic set of of Topics that we've undertaken during this live study, dealing with eschatology end-time events, dealing with Trinity versus non-Trinitarian arguments. Um, Lord, these are topics that are important, not just to me, but I know they're important to other people as well. And they must be important to you or you would not have included them in your word. So thank you for preserving these topics and allowing us to participate in studying and discussing them, not for academic sake, not merely for that, although that is... Uh, enjoyable. It's exciting to pour through all the details of just for the sake of of discussion and for the sake of debate. But ultimately, Lord, your words are designed to equip us and to prepare us to live live lives that are pleasing to you. 
and so that we can be ambassadors for your name and for your kingdom and to spread the god the, the good news the gospel to those who have not yet encountered messiah jesus who don't know him as lord who don't know him as savior give us holy boldness give us a a hunger and thirst for the lost as we study your words and prepare our hearts and our minds to speak your words as your representatives uh, forgive us where we fail you so miserably where we are simply negligent where we are uh forgetful where we just don't um understand um help us lord to understand you better and so um continue to protect us and to provide for us and take care of us as your children and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory bashim yeshua oh main